welcome to Discover Pediatric Surgery. My name is Andrew Grieve and I look forward to being your host today on this exciting episode. So I'd like to welcome Professor Beale who's with us today. Professor Beale is a South African graduate and a professor of pediatric surgery. Uh, he's been headhunted many times to go work overseas, but he's always remained in South Africa working tirelessly to improve the lives of kids with pediatric surgical issues. Amongst some of his greatest achievements are having successfully operated on over 400 esophageal atresias in his illustrious career, and we commend him for that. He's always been more focused on patient care than academic prowessness, but despite that, he's an academic and clinical mastermind. So we appreciate you joining us here today, Professor, and we look forward to hearing what you have to say to us. My privilege and pleasure. So, Prof, the first reported survivals of esophageal atresia with tracheoesophageal fistula were seen in the late sort of 1930s. Do you remember when you first did your first esophageal atresia repair? <laughs> I was born in the 1940s. So <laughs> I, do you say that when I was born in on the <clears throat> Port Elizabeth in the um, coast of South Africa, and I've been born with a soft trees, I would not have been a survivor. In this day and age, every child born with a soft trees has the human right to be a survivor. So, I mean, I did my first soft trees at the start of my uh, pediatric surgical training, which was in 1979. And <laughs> I was supervised and assisted by um, head of department at that time the first one I'd, I saw I'd actually did and I was never supervised again <laughs> so that's how, how training was in, way back then so you missed the adage of see one, do one, teach one you just went straight to doing one well that's how it was, yes <laughs> Prof, um, perhaps you can help us what are the common types of esophageal atresia that we can find? well about 90% are common type, which is proximal esophageal atresia and distal tracheoesophageal fistula. And the next uh, most common one, 8 to 10 percent, would be um, pure esophageal atresia, where um, there's no fistula. And in these cases, often the, the distal segment of the esophagus is therefore not tethered to the airway. And so these are the cases where you get so-called large gap esophageal atresia and personally I think they're the only cases who have genuine large gap esophageal atresia I think it's very uncommon that you cannot approximate a case with uh, fistula although I've had one of those in my my experience if the upper part is very short and you've got a carenal fistula in other words uh, you know low insertion of the fistula you can find it a problem to get it together Mm. Um, and the last uh, type is um, fistula without atresia, um, the so-called H-type fistula. That's one or two percent of the total. Um, in maybe a, you know up to five percent in some people's experiences, and they're uncommon. Um, they can, the diagnosis can be missed. In fact, we, we had one case who was only diagnosed at the age of 16, probably possibly the oldest on record. Um, 
and her fistula was associated with a segmental tracheal stenosis. And then, of course, there are a whole lot of different variants and associations. Um, what, are, what are some of the common associations that pediatric surgeons should be aware of when treating patients with esophageal atresia? Well, I mean, the most common group of associations are those of the VATA association. You have vertebral abnormalities, anorectal abnormalities, and radial dysplasia. There's also a significant um, incidence of uh, cardiac abnormalities. And I happen to have seen um, a few with um, congenital tracheal, CTS, congenital tracheal stenosis. That's quite a rare occurrence. It is, it is rare. Mm. I mean, the most common, I suppose, tracheal phenomenon you see is probably a tracheomalacia associated with oh, esophageal yeah, atresia. I mean, that's a common association, really. Mm. And, uh, but uh, congenital tracheal stenosis can be a problem at, at the, the time of repair. I mean, a, a case of mine <clears throat> about two years ago, an ethetist could not advance a tube down the the trachea. We got hold of it, um, infant bronchoscope and confirmed congenital tracheal stenosis. Had to resect that before we could intubate and then repair the esophageal atresia. Oh, thank goodness your armamentarium was <laughs> was up to scratch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on that occasion. You know, survival since the 1960s was based on Watterson's risk classification and later modified by Spitz. What are, your, what are your thoughts on the risk stratifications in esophageal atresia? Do you think they still hold true in this day and age? Not Waterston's. Um, I mean, uh, yes, uh, Spitzer's certainly are, are uh, valid, um, related on prematurity and birth weight and cardiac abnormalities. And I see that uh, Kamato has recently updated it. Antenatal ultrasounds and scanning seems to really taken off in the last decade or so. What are some of the features that we see on antenatal ultrasounds in association with esophageal atresia? Well, I mean, the, the general um, red flag uh, that alerts one to esophageal atresia is maternal polyhydramnios. And, um, you know, all patients with pure atresia will be born to mothers with maternal polyhydramnios and only about 40 to 50 percent of those with fistulae and um, certainly the features on ultrasound of patients with pure esophageal atresia is a small contracted stomach mm. and that's how they are identified um, it is it is so that uh, on occasions um, a um, good high definition ultrasound may see a, a, a wide esophageal pouch in the neck or in the thoracic inlet but that doesn't happen too often mm. yeah, unfortunately we especially in the state sector still are only scanning a handful of patients so we end up having to use our clinical acumen I suppose to really identify these patients before they're further investigated what are the common things we see clinically in patients with esophageal atresia with or without a fistula well, they have res respiratory distress early on and maybe salivating. And, and um, I mean, 
it's been um, known that uh, that's, um, they sometimes get fed and, and vomit and so on, and that diagnosed, um, not ideally in that way, but it happens. I mean, I can tell you in this academic hospital, we had one diagnosed at three weeks of age because by the speech therapist, having been referred the patient for inability to swallow, um, not the oldest patient we received. One was <laughs> transferred at, at 27 days of age from out of the country. Sure. So sometimes um, so it can be a bit of a challenge, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, the diagnosis, yes. But, I mean, you know, just passage of a non-opaque tube down the esophagus we regard as being adequate um, to confirm the diagnosis. Um, what kind know, of things are you looking for? An X-ray? Obviously, you'd see the arrest of the tube. Yeah, arrest of the tube will curled up in the upper esophagus. Um, and I mean, it, you know, there are places, centres in the world where they would do routine contrast studies. We we don't and haven't recommended that. And supposedly, the only real indication to do that was if you suspect an upper part fistula, which I think is very uncommon, extremely uncommon. Mm. I've only possibly had one ever. Yeah. And I think sometimes patients call upper parts fistulae may in fact have iatrogenic fistulae at surgery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dissecting the upper parts of the membranous trachea can be a bit of a challenge at times. Oh, certainly. I mean, it's very closely applied and, and one can breach the membranous trachea and have to close it. We were talking briefly a little about doing x-rays to investigate these kids. Um, obviously, we can look for the VATA association, but are there any other sort of typical things you really should look at when you do an x-ray just to make sure we don't fall into any traps or anything before theatre? Well, I mean, essential to, to see a whole baby x-ray. So you're seeing the uh, below the diaphragm and note whether there's air below the diaphragm or not. In other words, there is a fistula. Mm. Um, you don't want to go sailing into the chest and find that you've got a pure atresia with a wide gap that you're not aware of. Uh, you like to identify the the extent of the gap. Although, you know, we've had some experience using um, what's his name, Foker, John Foker from Minneapolis's uh, traction technique and have had some quite good success doing it. Mm. You can achieve uh, good traction elongation of the esophagus in the first, I think it's important to achieve the maximum in the first uh, sort of two or three days that you apply the traction. It's got to be securely um, secured to the um, extents of the, the esophagus with your suture technique. And um, you know, after that, it becomes indurated and woody, and it does it doesn't uh, stretch any further. Mm. But you can achieve good. Um, so I mean, we've approximated uh, cases with four and a half, five vertebral bodies uh, gap between the esophageal segments. Mm. Yeah, most of the time, esophageal atresias are not an emergency procedure. What's the best way to look after these kids? while you're waiting the opportunity to go to theatre? 
Well, the first thing you do is place a replogal tube in the upper pouch and put it on low-pressure suction so that you're continuously sucking saliva out of the upper pouch and it can't overflow and get aspirated into the lungs. Um, the other thing you look at on, on X-ray, of course, is for other associated abnormalities like duodenal atresia. Mm. And if you've got a gastric outlet obstruction, firstly, the child's at risk for, for refluxing bile back through the fistula into the lungs. And secondly, um, particularly in low birth weight babies, they can be at risk for gastric rupture, and we've had several of those in our experience as well, and including we, survivors. And we always get asked the question, you know, if you've got a esophageal atresia with a tracheosophageal fistula who's got an impending gastric perforation or indeed has got a gastric perforation with free peritoneal air, what do you do first? Do you decompress the abdomen or do you go and ligate the fistula? What do you do, Prof? Well, if the the child's in trouble um, from a distended abdomen, you can always uh, decompress air. And then the first thing you do is open the chest and you, you tie the fistula, clip or tie the fistula, and then get control of the of ventilation and the airway. And then, um, all things being equal, you can repair the soft atresia and then you open the abdomen and repair the, uh, the gastric rupture. Mm. So, Prof, what's your typical surgical approach to a patient with esophageal atresia and a tracheosophageal fistula? Perhaps you can just walk us through some of the pertinent steps and some of the sort of tips and tricks about how to make this sort of real classic pediatric surgical operation, you know, something... Quick and easy. Well, not about quick and easy, but uh, safe and effective. (laughs) Yeah, the... um you know, one goes through a right posterolateral thoracotomy incision, making a little fairly short incision below the tip of the scapula. And we learned, I learned very early in my career to do a non-muscle cutting incision um, and go through, you know, what's otherwise known as the angle of auscultation. Mm-hmm. And um, in doing the, this... Um, Firstly, you, you never get wings, scapulae, and and um, skeletal uh, um, deformity after that kind of incision, um, which which people who advocate um, thoracoscopic repair of a soft atresia like to uh, to trade on, mm-hmm. but um, you know, I, I made that. Um, Adaptation to non-cutting, non-muscle cutting incisions, and you know the next person who actually did it and repaired it was Roger Brereton in London. Um, but then, <clears throat> then one um, identifies the fourth intercostal space, and you open it on the upper <clears throat> surface of the, the fifth rib. And um, you can, in, in the majority of cases, stay outside the pleura. So you're doing an extra pleural procedure, which is a benefit and advantage over and above the thoracoscopic 
uh, repair of esophageal atresia where if you do get a leak and they get more leaks than, than we did, um, you've got an empyema. Mm. So, you know, the next thing you do is you um, identify the fistula and um, divide and serially close the tracheal side of the fistula. Are there any sort of anatomical clues as to where the fistula lies? Well, you look for the vagal nerve, for one thing, and then you follow it, and um, you look for the distal esophagus and then follow up to the, the apex of it, mm. where, or the, the proximal extent of it, where it enters the trachea, and, and you always put a little vessel loop around it, put some traction on it, and then uh, divide it, and then put a tube down it and aspirate the, the stomach empty. Um, next step is then to identify and mobilize the upper pouch and another very early um, innovation adaptation we used was to put a, a wide bore uh, tube down the, the proximal esophagus which presents and identifies the upper pouch for you um, and we used a, a Wishard catheter of the appropriate size. And it, it so facilitates the presentation and mobilization of the upper pouch. I think you get far better um, length and, um, of the upper pouch. And the, the upper pouch is then open just with a transverse incision, no buttonhole or anything, a transverse incision onto the the rounded tip of the Wishard catheter mm. and then um, you place your your sutures um, first uh, you know angle sutures on either side and then one posteriorly at the back and my custom is, is always to to go from inside out and tie the knots on the outside mm. And so you're doing what is a mucosa to mucosa anastomosis, which is almost like doing a vascular intima to intima anastomosis. Mm. And you get a very accurate um, anastomosis, um, complete your sutures all the way around the circumference of the esophagus, um, which may mean doing, you know, a dozen or more uh, sutures very early on, um, not being having the, the constraints of of um, senior um, um, instruction as to what suture you you could use or not use, <laughs> like four O silk. <laughs> um, as soon as uh, um, <clears throat> monofilament absorbable sutures became available, we used them. Mm -hmm. okay. So six, six zero polydiaxanone or you know, PDS sutures have been the routine material used um, for since, since 1980, mm -hmm. also since it first became available. Um, and I think, I mean, that's been helpful, and I think it's helped um, 
to to achieve the kind of results that we have achieved, and I can tell you that something like a one percent leak rate. Mm. That's remarkable. Which is <laughs> which needs to be published, but um, we've had we, leaks have become very very few and far between. I haven't seen one in the last fifteen or twenty years. So, Prof, people always talk about the upper part having a intramural blood supply and the lower part having a segmental blood supply and people preferentially mobilize the upper part as opposed to the lower part. Have you found that in your practice? Do you routinely do that? No, listen, I mean, your mobilization of the upper part is is, uh, what you do initially as far as you... um, to, to gain additional length and approximate it, and the blood supply certainly is more better. But, I mean, we learned, and the urban legend was that um, the, uh, the blood supply to the lower parts was not adequate. But, in fact, I've never found that to be the case. And one does mobilize the, the lower parts as much as you need to mm. without, without a problem. And... If I find that I've got um, lower pouch length to spare, um, in other words, sort of the fistulous extent of the, the lower pouch, I will actually resect it. Mm. So that, and then I think a little bit of, of distraction on the anastomosis is a good thing. Mm. Um, and then you've got a better caliber of distal esophagus and a better, um, better tissue that you're approximating to the upper pouch if you do that. Obviously, if you've got a, a gap problem, then you can't, can't do that. Yeah, yeah. So, Prof, obviously a pure esophageal atresia is a slightly different animal in many ways. Um, what's your approach in the first few days of life to these patients with a pure esophageal atresia? Well, it's to place a gastrostomy initially, um, and let it settle down and mature, and then the next thing is to identify the uh, width of the gap by <clears throat> passing a, a radiopaque object into through the gastrostomy into the distal esophagus. Um, I can tell you what we've always used as a bakes dilator, combaldic dilator, mm-hmm. because. It's um, it's rigid, but it's pliable. Um, Hega is not suitable because it's not pliable at all. You can't bend it. <laughs> if you get it into the distal esophagus, it's going to just impinge on the side wall, mm. not go into the tip. Other people have used a uh, you know, very small pediatric endoscope. Mm. I've not done that um, because, it, you know, the... Bakes dilator works so well and I think is very, very reliable actually. So, Prof, how long would you wait for differential growth in these neonates and infants? One has waited up to six weeks for, for differential growth. Um, I mean, the benefit of focus technique is that it, you know, it helps you to, that's the principle of stretching the esophagus with or without um, traction sutures in an interval mm. is you know putting 
traction on that esophagus and getting it closer together. And if you need to, then putting extraction sutures on, bringing them out of the chest wall, putting radio opaque clips on the extents and watch, watching it for a few days, um, approximating in the chest and then being able to go back and anastomose it. Um, so, you know, it limits the, the period of interval, waiting for differential growth. Helps you to to shorten the patient's hospital stay, get it, get the esophagus approximated, and get the patient going. Mm. So, for me, what kind of vertebral gap would you use as a guideline to when you think you can probably go and do a, an approximation? Well, as I say, we you know we approximated up to four and a half, most five uh, vertebral bodies. I think you just, you know, John focuses, you can approximate any esophagus. Um, so, Prof, you've used other, I mean, you, I mean, you've mentioned focus technique. I know that's a relatively recent uh, technique that we've been utilizing. What other techniques have you utilized with success when you just have run out of length with a pure esophageal atresia? I have early on, on, on several, no? maybe seven or eight occasions used lividitis myotomies mm-hmm. and you gain sort of 0.8, milli- 0.8 centimetre or 8 millimetres per myotomy. Okay. You use circular myotomies. Um, so it can be helpful to take tension off a uh, soft gelatresia anastomosis. Um I have also used, um, I think on two occasions, uh, a Goff-Bianchi pouch, mm-hmm. where you you make an incision in the, the pouch and flap it down and then do a longitudinal closure and use that to uh, approximate the esophagus. One of those patients did absolutely fine, didn't turn a hair. The other one, in fact, did develop a leak and a recurrent fistula but was a long-term survivor and has done very well in the long term. But uh, I think that it's not, it's not an ideal recommended technique um, that uh, you know, the other options are preferable. So, Prof, I mean, uh, it begs the question, you know, if you're really struggling to anastomose the two ends of the esophagus, I mean, do you go to any means necessary? Do you do a Charlie procedure? Do you consider doing a Collins lengthening procedure? I mean, or do, is there a time when you just kind of say, you call it quits, do an esophagostomy, and then come back later for a, a replacement procedure in a year's time? Well, I can tell you I have used the Charlie procedure on one occasion in a little low birth weight um, prem twin that came from Bloemfontein in the Free State and um, had, had, had failed esophageal atresia repair and so on and we did approximate he had cardiac abnormalities and other problems um, some renal anomalies as well and um, 
he had a shoddy procedure with a Nissen in the chest, and he has, in the long term, done absolutely fine as well. Mm-hmm. But it was done not as a neonate, as an, as an older infant. Okay. Been on gastrostomy feeds for some time. Um, so, I mean, I, th- I think that's not something that one u- would use other than in exceptional circumstances. The Prof, you've mentioned some of the potential complications of doing an esophageal atresia repair. You've obviously mentioned a leak uh, that we see, you know, intermittently. What are the other common sort of early and late complications from repairing the esophageal atresia? Well, a leak and a recurrent fistula. I mean, um, I think we've had two or three recurrent fistulae. Um, one in a referred patient and two in my own, one with the um, Goff Bianchi flap and another child who came back at the age of five with a recurrent fistula or, or a persistent fistula. I sometimes think she may have been the one case of upper pouch fistula that had been unrecognized. And that child uh, was repeatedly in respiratory um, distress and, and admitted to ICU before the fistula was identified and we closed it. Mm. And uh, that child also had trachymalasia and needed a, an aortopexy, um, which was in fact done through the neck because I, th- I thought it was, you know, because she was an older child. I have subsequently done a, like a about a 13-year-old, um, done an aortopexy on him. Um, which was done through the chest, and he did uh, gratifyingly well after mm. way would have pixie at that age. Yeah. And Prof, we used to see a lot of strictures after repair. I mean, the incident seems to be getting less over time, or it seems to wax and wane. What do you think causes or the strictures to be either prevalent or not? Well, I think it has to do to you know to do with two things really one is the extent of reflux so so reflux can perpetuate a, a stricture at the anastomosis and so those will not resolve until you resolve the reflux mm-hmm. so you need to look for for reflux sort that out and then usually with dilatation the, the stricture will resolve um the, the incidence of stricture, I think, is to a certain extent um, dependent on technique and the sort of anastomosis you're doing. If you're cobbling up the, the um, atresia anastomosis with wide sutures and um, if, perhaps doing it um, thoracoscopically where they do get a high incidence of stricture as opposed to the mucosa, mucosa anastomosis that, that we do, and sometimes resecting that very narrow fistless extent of the low, low esophagus that you um, have a, a lesser, lower incidence of, of stricture, which I think our, our percentage is only about 6%. Um, so I think it is related to technique to a certain extent. Prof, do you have any take-home messages you'd like people to go away with? I mean, you've obviously got a vast experience with esophageal atresia repairs and 
for you it's almost like second nature? I mean, the take-home message is that, <clears throat> you know, you can repair all the soft gelé tweezers um, and uh, the um, <clears throat> mortality is related to mainly associated anomalies, particular cardiac anomalies, as Spitzer's pointed out to us, associated, problems associated with prematurity, but, but not, not necessarily. Um, and as I said, it's the human right of every baby born in this day and age with a soft genetresia to be a survivor if it's a pure matter of a soft genetresia. The other thing is that I think that, um, particularly in the African environment, that a um, posterolateral extrapleural thoracotomy is still the gold standard. Mm-hmm. That um, I greatly admire people who can do, you know, extra uh, excellent uh, thoracoscopic repair of esophageal but there's a distinct learning curve, and um, you know, I know of patients who have been sacrificed in the interests of doing thoracoscopic esophageal repair, mm-hmm. and I think the the results we have got are still superior to. What, what has been reported with uh, thoracoscopic or soft gelatrizia repair. Problem being that, you know, in the last oh, 20, 30 years, nobody has reported on the results of of standard um, post-lateral thoracoscopic repair of soft gelatrizia. Everybody reports on the thoracoscopic results. Mm. So they're not... They compared with, um, you know, a series from Great Ormond Street done 30 years ago, mm. and not paired with compared with current open um, results, where you, you get a little hairline scar below the the scapula, which where um, thoracoscopic surgeons uh, claim that the cosmetic end results of their thoracoscopic repairs are far superior to open. In fact, they've got four portals, which can be more unsightly than, than the little hairline scar below the, the um, scapula. Mm. And in fact, if you're totally um, confident of your soft gelatresia anastomosis, you needn't put a drain in at all. Mm. Oh, thank you, Prof. Appreciate the time you've managed to spend with us, and we look forward to seeing your results uh, published for us all to to try and achieve our the same level. Thank you very much. Thanks, Andrew. I hope I haven't been too controversial. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on Discover Pediatric Surgery. Let your friends and colleagues know so we can all learn together. Catch you next week. <laughs>